Chapter 11, The Privilege of Prayer Through nature and revelation, through His providence, and by the influence of His Spirit, God speaks to us. But these are not enough. We need also to pour out our hearts to Him. In order to have spiritual life and energy, we must have actual intercourse with our Heavenly Father. Our minds may be drawn out toward Him. We may meditate upon His works, His mercies, His blessings, but this is not, in the fullest sense, communing with Him. In order to commune with God, we must have something to say to Him concerning our actual life. Prayer is the opening of the heart to God as to a friend. Not that it is necessary in order to make known to God what we are, but in order to enable us to receive Him. Prayer does not bring God down to us, but brings us up to Him. When Jesus was upon the earth, He taught His disciples how to pray. He directed them to present their daily needs before God and to cast all their care upon Him. And the assurance He gave them that their petitions should be heard is assurance also to us. Jesus Himself, while He dwelt among men, was often in prayer. Our Savior identified Himself with our needs and weaknesses in that He became a suppliant, a petitioner, seeking from His Father fresh supplies of strength, that He might come forth braced for duty and trial. He is our example in all things. He is a brother in our infirmities, in all points tempted like as we are, but as the sinless one, His nature recoiled from evil. He endured struggles and torture of soul in a world of sin, his humanity made prayer a necessity and a privilege. He found comfort and joy in communion with his Father. And if the Savior of men, the Son of God, felt the need of prayer, how much more should feeble, sinful mortals feel the necessity of fervent, constant prayer? Our Heavenly Father waits to bestow upon us the fullness of his blessing. It is our privilege to drink largely at the fountain of boundless love. What a wonder it is that we pray so little. God is ready and willing to hear the sincere prayer of the humblest of His children, and yet there is much manifest reluctance on our part to make known our wants to God. What can the angels of heaven think of poor, helpless human beings who are subject to temptation when God's heart of infinite love yearns toward them, ready to give them more than they can ask or think, and yet they pray so little and have so little faith. The angels love to bow before God. They love to be near Him. They regard communion with God as their highest joy, and yet the children of earth, who need so much the help that God only can give, seem satisfied to walk without the light of His Spirit, the companionship of His presence. The darkness of the evil one encloses those who neglect to pray. The whispered temptations of the enemy entice them to sin, and it is all because they do not make use of the privilege that God has given them in the divine appointment of prayer. Why should the sons and daughters of God be reluctant to pray 
when prayer is the key in the hand of faith to unlock heaven's storehouse, where are treasured the boundless resources of omnipotence. Without unceasing prayer and diligent watching, we are in danger of growing careless and of deviating from the right path. The adversary seeks continually to obstruct the way to the mercy seat that we may not by earnest supplication and faith obtain grace and power to resist temptation. There are certain conditions upon which we may expect that God will hear and answer our prayers. One of the first of these is that we feel our need of help from Him. He has promised, I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, and floods upon the dry ground. Isaiah 44, 3. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, who long after God, may be sure that they will be filled. The heart must be open to the Spirit's influence, or God's blessing cannot be received. Our great need is itself an argument and pleads most eloquently in our behalf. But the Lord is to be sought unto to do these things for us. He says, Ask, and it shall be given you. And he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Matthew 7, 7, and Romans 8, verse 32. If we regard iniquity in our hearts, if we cling to any known sin, the Lord will not hear us. But the prayer of the penitent, contrite soul is always accepted. When all known wrongs are righted, we may believe that God will answer our petitions. Our own merit will never commend us to the favor of God. It is the worthiness of Jesus that will save us. His blood that will cleanse us. Yet we have a work to do in complying with the conditions of acceptance. Another element of prevailing prayer is faith. He that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Hebrews 11, verse 6. Jesus said to his disciples, What things soever ye desire, when ye pray, believe that you receive them, and you shall have them. Mark 11.24 Do we take him at his word? The assurance is broad and unlimited, and he is faithful who has promised. When we do not receive the very things we asked for at the time we ask, we are still to believe that the Lord hears and that he will answer our prayers. We are so erring and short-sighted that we sometimes ask for things that would not be a blessing to us, and our Heavenly Father in love answers our prayers by giving us that which will be for our highest good. That which we ourselves would desire if, with vision divinely enlightened, we could see all things as they really are. When our prayers seem not to be answered, we are to cling to the promise for the time of answering will surely come, and we shall receive the blessing we need most. But to claim that prayer will always be answered in the very way and for the particular thing that we desire is presumption. God is too wise to err and too good to withhold any good thing from them that walk uprightly. Then do not fear to trust him, 
even though you do not see the immediate answer to your prayers. Rely upon His sure promise, ask, and it shall be given you. If we take counsel with our doubts and fears, or try to solve everything that we cannot see clearly before we have faith, perplexities will only increase and deepen. But if we come to God feeling helpless and dependent, as we really are, and in humble, trusting faith make known our wants to Him whose knowledge is infinite, who sees everything in creation, and who governs everything by His will and word, He can and will attend to our cry and will let light shine into our hearts. Through sincere prayer, we are brought into connection with the mind of the infinite. We may have no remarkable evidence at the time that the face of our Redeemer is bending over us in compassion and love, but this is even so. We may not feel His visible touch, but His hand is upon us in love and pitying tenderness. When we come to ask mercy and blessing from God, we should have a spirit of love and forgiveness in our own hearts. How can we pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, and yet indulge an unforgiving spirit? Matthew 6.12 If we expect our own prayers to be heard, we must forgive others in the same manner and to the same extent as we hope to be forgiven. Perseverance in prayer has been made a condition of receiving. We must pray always if we would grow in faith and experience. We are to be instant in prayer, to continue in prayer, and watch in the same with thanksgiving, Romans 12.12 12 and Colossians 4, verse 2. Peter exhorts believers to be sober and watch unto prayer, 1 Peter 4, verse 7. Paul directs, In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Philippians 4, verse 6. But ye, beloved, says Jude, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God. Jude, verses 20 and 21. Unceasing prayer is the unbroken union of the soul with God so that life from God flows into our life, and from our life, purity and holiness flow back to God. There is necessity for diligence in prayer. Let nothing hinder you. Make every effort to keep open the communion between Jesus and your own soul. Seek every opportunity to go where prayer is wont to be made. Those who are really seeking for communion with God will be seen in the prayer meeting, faithful to do their duty, and earnest and anxious to reap all the benefits they can gain. They will improve every opportunity of placing themselves where they can receive the rays of light from heaven. We should pray in the family circle, and above all, we must not neglect secret prayer, for this is the life of the soul. It is impossible for the soul to flourish while prayer is neglected. Family or public prayer alone is not sufficient. In solitude, let the soul be laid open to the inspecting eye of God. Secret prayer is to be heard only by the prayer-hearing God. 
No curious ear is to receive the burden of such petitions. In secret prayer, the soul is free from surrounding influences, free from excitement. Calmly yet fervently will it reach out after God. Sweet and abiding will be the influence emanating from him who seeth in secret, whose ear is open to hear the prayer arising from the heart. By calm, simple faith, the soul holds communion with God and gathers to itself rays of divine light to strengthen and sustain it in the conflict with Satan. God is our tower of strength. Pray in your closet, and as you go about your daily labor, let your heart be often uplifted to God. It was thus that Enoch walked with God. These silent prayers rise like precious incense before the throne of grace. Satan cannot overcome him whose heart is thus stayed upon God. There is no time or place in which it is inappropriate to offer up a petition to God. There is nothing that can prevent us from lifting up our hearts in the spirit of earnest prayer. In the crowds of the street, in the midst of a business engagement, we may send up a petition to God and plead for divine guidance. As did Nehemiah when he made his request before King Artaxerxes. A closet of communion may be found wherever we are. We should have the door of the heart open continually and our invitation going up that Jesus may come and abide as a heavenly guest in the soul. Although there may be a tainted, corrupted atmosphere around us, we need not breathe its miasma, but may live in the pure air of heaven. We may close every door to impure imaginings and unholy thoughts by lifting the soul into the presence of God through sincere prayer. Those whose hearts are open to receive the support and blessing of God will walk in a holier atmosphere than that of earth and will have constant communion with heaven. We need to have more distinct views of Jesus and a fuller comprehension of the value of eternal realities. The beauty of holiness is to fill the hearts of God's children, and that this may be accomplished, we should seek for divine disclosures of heavenly things. Let the soul be drawn out and upward, that God may grant us a breath of the heavenly atmosphere. We may keep so near to God that in every unexpected trial our thoughts will turn to Him as naturally as the flower turns to the sun. Keep your wants, your joys, your sorrows, your cares, and your fears before God. You cannot burden Him. You cannot weary Him. He who numbers the hairs of your head is not indifferent to the wants of his children. The Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. James 5, verse 11. His heart of love is touched by our sorrows and even by our utterances of them. Take to him everything that perplexes the mind. Nothing is too great for him to bear, for he holds up worlds. He rules over all the affairs of the universe. Nothing that in any way concerns our peace is too small for him to notice. 
There is no chapter in our experience too dark for him to read. There is no perplexity too difficult for him to unravel. No calamity can befall the least of his children. No anxiety harass the soul. No joy cheer, no sincere prayer escape the lips of which our Heavenly Father is unobservant or in which he takes no immediate interest. He healeth the broken in heart and bindeth up their wounds. Psalm 147, verse 3. The relations between God and each soul are as distinct and full as though there were not another soul upon the earth to share his watch care, not another soul for whom he gave his beloved Son. Jesus said, Ye shall ask in my name, and I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loveth you. I have chosen you, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. John sixteen twenty six and 27, and 15, verse 16. But to pray in the name of Jesus is something more than a mere mention of that name at the beginning and ending of a prayer. It is to pray in the mind and spirit of Jesus. While we believe his promises, rely upon his grace, and work his works. God does not mean that any of us should become hermits or monks and retire from the world in order to devote ourselves to acts of worship. The life must be like Christ's life, between the mountain and the multitude. He who does nothing but pray will soon cease to pray, or his prayers will become a formal routine. When men take themselves out of social life, away from the sphere of Christian duty and cross-bearing, when they cease to work earnestly for the Master, who worked earnestly for them, they lose the subject matter of prayer and have no incentive to devotion. Their prayers become personal and selfish. They cannot pray in regard to the wants of humanity or the upbuilding of Christ's kingdom, pleading for strength wherewith to work. We sustain a loss when we neglect the privilege of associating together to strengthen and encourage one another in the service of God. The truths of His Word lose their vividness and importance in our minds. Our hearts cease to be enlightened and aroused by their sanctifying influence, and we decline in spirituality. In our association as Christians, we lose much by lack of sympathy with one another. He who shuts himself up to himself is not filling the position that God designed he should. The proper cultivation of the social elements in our nature brings us into sympathy with others and is a means of development and strength to us in the service of God. If Christians would associate together, speaking to each other of the love of God and of the precious truths of redemption, their own hearts would be refreshed, and they would refresh one another. We may be daily learning more of our Heavenly Father, gaining a fresh experience of His grace. Then we shall desire to speak of His love, and as we do this, our own hearts will be warmed and encouraged. If we thought and talked more of Jesus and less of self, we should have far more of His presence. If we would but think of God as often as we have evidence of his care for us, 
we should keep him ever in our thoughts and should delight to talk of him and to praise him. We talk of temporal things because we have an interest in them. We talk of our friends because we love them. Our joys and our sorrows are bound up with them. Yet we have infinitely greater reason to love God than to love our earthly friends. It should be the most natural thing in the world to make Him first in all our thoughts, to talk of His goodness and tell of His power. The rich gifts He has bestowed upon us were not intended to absorb our thoughts and love so much that we should have nothing to give to God. They are constantly to remind us of Him and to bind us in bonds of love and gratitude to our heavenly benefactor. We dwell too near the lowlands of the earth. Let us raise our eyes to the open door of the sanctuary above, where the light of the glory of God shines in the face of Christ, who is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. Hebrews 7.25 We need to praise God more for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Psalm 107, verse 8. Our devotional exercises should not consist wholly in asking and receiving. Let us not be always thinking of our wants and never of the benefits we receive. We do not pray any too much, but we are too sparing of giving thanks. We are the constant recipients of God's mercies, and yet, how little gratitude we express, how little we praise Him for what He has done for us. Anciently the Lord bade Israel, when they met together for His service, Ye shall eat before the Lord your God, and ye shall rejoice in all that ye put your hand unto, ye and your households, wherein the Lord thy God hath blessed thee. Deuteronomy 12, verse 7. That which is done for the glory of God should be done with cheerfulness, with songs of praise and thanksgiving, not with sadness and gloom. Our God is a tender, merciful Father. His service should not be looked upon as a heart-saddening, distressing exercise. It should be a pleasure to worship the Lord and to take part in His work. God would not have His children, for whom so great salvation has been provided, act as if he were a hard, exacting taskmaster. He is their best friend, and when they worship him, he expects to be with them, to bless and comfort them, filling their hearts with joy and love. The Lord desires his children to take comfort in his service and to find more pleasure than hardship in his work. He desires that those who come to worship him shall carry away with them precious thoughts of his care and love, that they may be cheered in all the employments of daily life, that they may have grace to deal honestly and faithfully in all things. We must gather about the cross. Christ and him crucified should be the theme of contemplation, of conversation, and of our most joyful emotion. We should keep in our thoughts every blessing we receive from God, and when we realize his great love, we should be willing to trust everything to the hand that was nailed to the cross for us. The soul may ascend nearer heaven on the wings of praise. God is worshipped with song and music in the courts above, and as we express our gratitude, 
we are approximating to the worship of the heavenly hosts. Whoso offereth praise glorifieth God. Psalm fifty twenty three. Let us, with fervent joy, come before our Creator with thanksgiving and the voice of melody. Isaiah 51, verse 3. Chapter 12, What to Do with Doubt Many, especially those who are young in the Christian life, are at times troubled with the suggestions of skepticism. There are, in the Bible, many things which they cannot explain or even understand, and Satan employs these to shake their faith in the Scriptures as a revelation from God. They ask, How shall I know the right way? If the Bible is indeed the Word of God, how can I be freed from these doubts and perplexities? God never asks us to believe without giving sufficient evidence upon which to base our faith. His existence, His character, the truthfulness of His Word are all established by testimony that appeals to our reason, and this testimony is abundant. Yet, God has never removed the possibility of doubt. Our faith must rest upon evidence, not demonstration. Those who wish to doubt will have opportunity, while those who really desire to know the truth will find plenty of evidence on which to rest their faith. It is impossible for finite minds fully to comprehend the character of the works of the Infinite One. To the keenest intellect, the most highly educated mind, that holy being must ever remain clothed in mystery. Canst thou by searching find out God? Canst thou find out the Almighty unto perfection? It is as high as heaven. What canst thou do? Deeper than hell. What canst thou know? Job 11, verses 7 and 8. The Apostle Paul exclaims, O oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments, and His ways past finding out! Romans eleven thirty three. But though clouds and darkness are round about Him, righteousness and judgment are the foundation of His throne. Psalm 97, verse 2, the Revised Version. We can so far comprehend his dealings with us and the motives by which he is actuated that we may discern boundless love and mercy united to infinite power. We can understand as much of his purposes as it is for our good to know. And beyond this, we must still trust the hand that is omnipotent, the heart that is full of love. The Word of God like the character of its divine author, presents mysteries that can never be fully comprehended by finite beings. The entrance of sin into the world, the incarnation of Christ, regeneration, the resurrection, and many other subjects presented in the Bible are mysteries too deep for the human mind to explain or even fully to comprehend. But we have no reason to doubt God's Word because we cannot understand the mysteries of His providence. In the natural world, we are constantly surrounded with mysteries that we cannot fathom. The very humblest forms of life present a problem that the wisest of philosophers is powerless to explain. Everywhere are wonders beyond our ken. Should we then be surprised to find that in the spiritual world also there are mysteries that we cannot fathom? 
The difficulty lies solely in the weakness and narrowness of the human mind. God has given us in the Scriptures sufficient evidence of their divine character, and we are not to doubt His Word because we cannot understand all the mysteries of His providence. The Apostle Peter says that there are in Scripture things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest unto their own destruction. 2 Peter 3.16 The difficulties of Scripture have been urged by skeptics as an argument against the Bible. But so far from this, they constitute a strong evidence of its divine inspiration. If it contained no account of God but that which we could easily comprehend, if His greatness and majesty could be grasped by finite minds, then the Bible would not bear the unmistakable credentials of divine authority. The very grandeur and mystery of the themes presented should inspire faith in it as the Word of God. The Bible unfolds truth with a simplicity and a perfect adaptation to the needs and longings of the human heart that has astonished and charmed the most highly cultivated minds while it enables the humblest and uncultured to discern the way of salvation. And yet, these simply stated truths lay hold upon subjects so elevated, so far-reaching, so infinitely beyond the power of human comprehension that we can accept them only because God has declared them. Thus, the plan of redemption is laid open to us so that every soul may see the steps he is to take in repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved in God's appointed way. Yet beneath these truths so easily understood lie mysteries that are the hiding of His glory, mysteries that overpower the mind in its research, yet inspire the sincere seeker for truth with reverence and faith. The more he searches the Bible, the deeper is his conviction that it is the word of the living God and human reason bows before the majesty of divine revelation. To acknowledge that we cannot fully comprehend the great truths of the Bible is only to admit that the finite mind is inadequate to grasp the infinite, that man, with his limited human knowledge, cannot understand the purposes of omniscience. Because they cannot fathom all its mysteries, the skeptic and the infidel reject God's word, and not all who profess to believe the Bible are free from danger on this point. The apostle says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Hebrews 3, verse 12. It is right to study closely the teachings of the Bible and to search into the deep things of God so far as they are revealed in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 2.10 while the secret things belong unto the Lord our God, those things which are revealed belong unto us. Deuteronomy 29, 29. But it is Satan's work to pervert the investigative powers of the mind. A certain pride is mingled with the consideration of Bible truth, so that men feel impatient and defeated if they cannot explain every portion of Scripture to their satisfaction. It is too humiliating to them to acknowledge that they do not understand the inspired words. They are unwilling to wait patiently until God shall see fit to reveal the truth to them. 
They feel that their unaided human wisdom is sufficient to enable them to comprehend the Scripture, and failing to do this, they virtually deny its authority. It is true that many theories and doctrines popularly supposed to be derived from the Bible have no foundation in its teaching and indeed are contrary to the whole tenor of inspiration. These things have been a cause of doubt and perplexity to many minds. They are not, however, chargeable to God's Word, but to man's perversion of it. If it were possible for created beings to attain to a full understanding of God and His works, then, having reached this point, there would be for them no further discovery of truth, no growth in knowledge, no further development of mind or heart. God would no longer be supreme, and man, having reached the limit of knowledge and attainment, would cease to advance. Let us thank God that it is not so. God is infinite. In Him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2, verse 3. And to all eternity men may be ever searching, ever learning, and yet never exhaust the treasures of His wisdom, His goodness, and His power. God intends that even in this life, the truths of His Word shall be ever unfolding to His people. There is only one way in which this knowledge can be obtained. We can attain to an understanding of God's Word only through the illumination of that Spirit by which the Word was given. The things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. 1 Corinthians 2, 11 and 10. And the Savior's promise to his followers was, When he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. John 16, verses 13 and 14. God desires man to exercise his reasoning powers, and the study of the Bible will strengthen and elevate the mind as no other study can. Yet we are to beware of deifying reason, which is subject to the weakness and infirmity of humanity. If we would not have the Scriptures clouded to our understanding, so that the plainest truths shall not be comprehended, we must have the simplicity and faith of a little child, ready to learn and beseeching the aid of the Holy Spirit. A sense of the power and wisdom of God and of our inability to comprehend His greatness should inspire us with humility, and we should open His Word as we would enter his presence with holy awe. When we come to the Bible, reason must acknowledge an authority superior to itself, and heart and intellect must bow to the great I Am. There are many things apparently difficult or obscure which God will make plain and simple to those who thus seek an understanding of them. But without the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we shall be continually liable to rest the Scriptures or to misinterpret them. There is much reading of the Bible that is without profit, and in many cases a positive injury. When the Word of God is opened without reverence and without prayer, when the thoughts and affections are not fixed upon God or in harmony with His will, the mind is clouded with doubts. And in the very study of the Bible, skepticism strengthens. The enemy takes control of the thoughts, and he suggests interpretations that are not correct. 
whenever men are not in word and deed seeking to be in harmony with God, then, however learned they may be, they are liable to error in the understanding of Scripture, and it is not safe to trust to their explanations. Those who look to the Scriptures to find discrepancies have not spiritual insight. With distorted vision, they will see many causes for doubt and unbelief in things that are really plain and simple. Disguise it as they may, the real cause of doubt and skepticism, in most cases, is the love of sin. The teachings and restrictions of God's Word are not welcome to the proud, sin-loving heart, and those who are unwilling to obey its requirements are ready to doubt its authority. In order to arrive at truth, we must have a sincere desire to know the truth and a willingness of heart to obey it. And all who come in this spirit to the study of the Bible will find abundant evidence that it is God's Word, and they may gain an understanding of its truth that will make them wise unto salvation. Christ has said, If any man willeth to do his will, he shall know of the teaching. John 7, verse 17, the Revised Version. Instead of questioning and caviling concerning that which you do not understand, give heed to the light that already shines upon you, and you will receive greater light. By the grace of Christ, perform every duty that has been made plain to your understanding, and you will be enabled to understand and perform those of which you are now in doubt. There is an evidence that is open to all, the most highly educated and the most illiterate, the evidence of experience. God invites us to prove for ourselves the reality of His Word, the truth of His promises. He bids us, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34, verse 8. Instead of depending upon the word of another, we are to taste for ourselves. He declares, Ask, and you shall receive. John 16, 24. His promises will be fulfilled. They have never failed. They never can fail. And as we draw near to Jesus and rejoice in the fullness of his love, our doubt and darkness will disappear in the light of his presence. The Apostle Paul says that God hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, Colossians 1.13. And everyone who has passed from death unto life is able to set to his seal that God is true. John 3.33. He can testify, I needed help, and I found it in Jesus. Every want was supplied. The hunger of my soul was satisfied. And now the Bible is to me the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you ask why I believe in Jesus? Because he is to me a divine Savior. Why do I believe the Bible? Because I have found it to be the voice of God to my soul. We may have the witness in ourselves that the Bible is true, that Christ is the Son of God. We know that we are not following cunningly devised fables. Peter exhorts his brethren to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, 2 Peter 3.18. When the people of God are growing in grace, they will be constantly obtaining a clearer understanding of his word. They will discern new light and beauty in its sacred truths. This has been true in the history of the church in all ages, and thus it will continue to the end. 
The path of the righteous is as the light of dawn that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. Proverbs 4.18, the Revised Version. By faith, we may look to the hereafter and grasp the pledge of God for a growth of intellect, the human faculties uniting with the divine, and every power of the soul being brought into direct contact with the source of light. We may rejoice that all which has perplexed us in the providence of God will then be made plain. Things hard to be understood will then find an explanation. And where our finite minds discovered only confusion and broken purposes, we shall see the most perfect and beautiful harmony. Now we see through a glass, darkly, but then, face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12.